Welcome to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Joyous conversations about what the afterlife evidence and modern science combine to tell us is true about our one reality. You have nothing to fear. You are eternal and you are perfectly loved. Knowing the truth changes everything. Now, here's Roberta. Welcome to Seek Reality. I'm Roberta Grimes and I'm so glad you're with us today. One of the best things about being alive as we enter the third decade of the 21st century is the fact that for the first time in history, it's possible for each of us to know that we never will die. It's impossible, in fact, for anyone ever to die. And what we experience as consciousness is actually, we experience it, of course, in a dim way, but it's actually the base creative force that continuously manifests reality. How amazing is that? I can demonstrate all of this conclusively at this point. I've spent 50 years studying communications from those that we used to think were dead and also studying, as you know, the gospel teachings of Jesus, which are immensely important in contributing to what we learn now and what we know, and the little quantum mechanics thrown in just to help to pull it all together. By 2010, I had produced a simple approach to the two biggest questions, what happens at death, what really is going on. And my my way of doing this really especially suits Westerners because they are, you know, kind of leery of anything that's Eastern or woo-woo. And I set it forth in my book, as you know, The Fun of Dying, Find Out What Really Happens Next. And I thought, okay, that's the ball game. But it is possible, I now understand, to glean what are essentially those same truths by looking to the various states of consciousness that people have been experiencing for as long as there have been people. There is a whole new way of getting to the same place and learning that over the past year from the friend we have on today is really an astonishing thing. It's fun and it's exciting that it's possible to get there from a whole other direction. And this is not a direction I understand, incidentally, so we're going to look to our expert to help us understand that. She's an expert in symbology, in what the ancients used to believe and think, and in how to interpret dreams in all of the ways that our consciousness for all of human history has been helping us to better understand what's actually going on. Dr. Betty J. Kovacs joins us for the second time. She received her Ph.D. from the University of California at Irvine in comparative literature and theory of symbolic mythic language. I didn't even know you could study those things. But she's an expert. She taught literature, writing, and symbolic mythic language for 25 years. And she served for many years as chair and program chair on the board of directors of the Young Society of Claremont in California. She sits on the Academic National Advisory Board of Forever Family Foundation, which, as you all know, is focused on helping people to heal when a family member dies. And she speaks to national and global audiences, so we're honored to have her with us today. The last time she was with us, Dr. Kovacs talked about her excellent book on one of our favorite topics, of course. It's called The Merchants of Light, The Consciousness That is Changing the World. Again, she gets there from a whole different place. Our topic today is her first book, which is called The Miracle of Death, There Is Nothing But Light. This is a very emotional book for me. Um, I've, I've, uh, it, it was a little bit hard to read in spots because of the pain. It was so obvious that the people were feeling. But uh, it's triumphal, so triumphal as we see where Betty went from these experiences. She calls 
The fact that we cannot die a miracle, and indeed it is a miracle when you've lost your family and even when you're just looking toward your own death. In fact, when your turn comes to go home and you begin to glimpse the beauty to which you are returning, promise, I promise, you can haunt me if I'm wrong. When you get there, I think you're going to feel that you are very lucky and you will consider it to be a miracle too. Betty, welcome. I'm so glad you're with us again. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much, Roberta. I'm glad to be back. We do have fun. Um, I'd like you to talk a little bit about these events that got you started on what has been an amazing journey. Um, most people can't imagine going through one of these events, and, and, and you went through three. Can you tell us just briefly what happened? You're, here you are. You're, you're a serious scholar and teacher, and you have a, a wonderful husband. I'd just come to love your husband. <laughs> as I was reading your book and this beautiful beautiful single child one son and he turns 20 years old what happened well what happened was that uh, our son was in an automobile accident when he was 20 and he was in uh, the trauma center for 13 days and I was very grateful for that because that gave us time to adjust to the possibility of his death Uh, he had uh, a young woman that he loved very much, and she was there with us the whole time. And it was it was a really great difficulty for her. But uh, as my husband and I uh, looked back at uh, our experiences before the accident, uh, I realized that I had been having dreams of his death uh, for two years, although I had looked at them symbolically. And he had had an experience Uh, And he had not been so interested in these things as I had been, but he had an experience in his office uh, two weeks before Pishti's accident. And he suddenly he saw Pishti's car on the side of the freeway, and he saw his Pishti's body superimposed on the car. And he knew immediately that that meant he was dead because it was a superimposition on another dimension. And then he heard Pishti's voice say, that's right, Dad. I'll be out of the house for a little while. And oh my. Yeah, can you imagine? Oh, no. He he didn't he completely went unconscious when that happened because he he re, he knew when Pishti said that and he said, "Oh, that's right. It's almost time for you to do this." So it was as though oh, we knew somehow in us knowing and that doesn't mean yeah. that he was predestined to do anything. Um, I think we learn at a, at a given place in our our lives that the past, present, and future in the other dimension fuses. It's together. And so sometimes we have visions in which we actually see uh, the future manifestation of the choices we're making. We could have made them before in the other dimension or made them here for a reason. So uh, that that happened. And then for two years that followed, Ishtvan and I had incredible experiences with Pishti in, in a visionary uh, sense. And sometimes my husband on the way to work said, it's almost like a tape recorder is going off in my brain. I, I'm remembering, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to remember things I had forgotten. And... Uh, so then Ishwan was also killed. He went to his home country uh, to visit his family, and he was killed there a little more than two years after Pishti. So, and one year before our son was killed, my mother had been killed in 
another automobile accident, and she oh died instantly. So there were three automobile accidents, the death of everyone in my family within three years. But, oh, but <laughs> what saved us was that we had the experiences with our son, powerful experiences in which so many things were remembered and talked about and experienced. And I know now that that is our destiny, our heritage as human beings to be able to experience the other dimension. We're not meant to be cut off from it. We are made in such a way that we can connect with that other dimension and and we should do it throughout our lives because that is what makes us whole. I, of course, I agree with everything you're saying. But what fascinated me was that because of your of your depth of study in 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 the old symbolic, um, I mean, we are all people who work in this field tend to be aware that um, you know that the the Native Americans had dream time, and um, I, you know we, we, there was there were complicated. Uh, uh, afterlife related uh, uh, beliefs that the Egyptians had and others had, but we're only glancingly aware. And you, you seem in, at least in your book to deeply understand and be able to relate those, those ancient myths to what's happening now and make it relevant and use it to deepen and resonate your reactions to what was happening during this experience, this set of experiences. Yes, I'm very grateful that I was a teacher and that I taught a symbolic language and mythology and fairy tale. And while I have my doctorate from the University of California at Irvine, I think that I learn more with the students during the times, the years that I taught. Yes. <laughs> it was like an experiment and an adventure for all of us. So we were discovering these things. After the deaths, I retired. And I began to do deeper research. Uh, but I had also uh, been to South America twice uh, with shamans. And uh, I, I was really, after my doctorate, I wanted to just open my whole mind and heart and experience something beyond the conceptual, rational brain. And I went there twice. That did help. It was helpful. Uh, but I was always seeking, also through the Jung Institute, uh, we were constantly programming people to come. Uh, we were all just investigating what might be possible. So I was kind of tuned into that, whereas my husband was not. But after his first vision with Pishti, he certainly was. It was like a changed man. But uh, you, you, could, you write that very well. I mean, I really felt got, got to feel that I knew you too. too. I knew your relationship. <laughs> It was That's actually, I, it, it gives a, a spine to your book, uh, a sort of human spine of relationship and love and, you know, mutual support that I, you know, you'd be much lesser book if you had not been such an interesting person, I have to say. I'm very grateful. And it's really funny because when I came back uh, the second time for Peru, I had had uh, a vision there, a very powerful vision. In fact, that kind of got the visions going uh, because I had even said to the shaman, you know, I 
I have to do something because I can't seem to open up that visionary world. Well, I did have a vision. And so I don't know why I chose, and this is in the book, to tell my husband about that vision when he's reading the sports section of LA Times. Right, right. And he was trying so hard to pay attention and he just wasn't interested. And so finally I said, you know, you're really not interested in this, are you? And he said what I think is completely honest of so many people I meet, and that is, I've never had such an experience, and I just can't relate to, to what you're telling me. Right, right. And then after his first experience with Pishti, though, he sat up on the side of the bed, and he said, I had no idea what you were talking about, and right. I will never look at the earth in the same way again. Yes, yes. Extraordinary experiences are that transformative and that amazing and wonderful, and it is possible, as you have done, to come to encourage them to be to make them a normal part of your life. A lot of reasons the the reason that people don't have these experiences is that they don't believe they can have them. That's and it. What, yeah, I agree. <laughs> what, what, once you open it, it's 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 really a, really an amazing thing. I choose not to have them, and I actually actually ask not to have them. But I'm very aware that I'm very close a lot of times. But let's talk a little bit about a, a little background. Um, Istvan was was Hungarian uh, ancestry, and your son was named after him. And Istvan means Steve. Your <laughs> That's right, husband Steve. That's so, right, and so, and Kovac so means is Steve. It means like Stevie. It's like a, like the diminutive, right? It is. It is. And uh, Istvan is uh, not Istvan. Istvan is Stephen. Yes, but Kovac is Smith. <laughs> so it was really Stephen oh, Smith. So, so his name, you married very, Steve Smith, but he's yeah, very common. <laughs> oh, that's great. I love it. Yeah. And, and and I noticed that that um, Jenny called your son Steve. It's like she did. She did. And for when my son was oh, young, much younger. He wanted us to call him that. And I said, you know, I just can't do that. <laughs> and finally he said, no, that's okay. Just people, you know, my friends will call me Steve. And so that's the way it worked, you know. Yeah. He, was, um, he was born in America and all that, wasn't he? He was. He was totally American. And Ishvan was born in Hungary. And he fought in the Hungarian Revolution and uh, escaped and came, finally was in Yugoslavia uh, for a while. And then finally, I think it was the World uh, Church Service that brought him to America. And he was just as grateful as he could be <laughs> to be in this country. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, my goodness. That's a wonderful. It, it's, I, I had a friend, too, who um, had been part of the he was a child at the time of the of the revolution. And he also came over for the same reason. He had to get away and also had, to this day is very grateful. But so so one of the other things I want to mention uh, to everyone is look at the age Pishy was when he died. He was 20. We also know, of course, that Mikey Morgan was 20 when he died, and that was his last planned exit point. What we have been told and told repeatedly by people that we used to think were dead is that whenever a child dies, sub-adult, and 20 is considered sub-adult. I'm not sure where the cutoff is. I think it's in the mid-20s. But whenever a child dies, that is an advanced being who specifically chose to have that lifetime doesn't need it. Didn't need. Didn't. Have, I'm sure your son must have been an extraordinary person um, to to have in your life. They don't need that lifetime, but they come as a gift to their parents and to uh, to the people their parents interact with. So, 
he is part, really part of Betty's story now in a very organic way because he is, has enabled and empowered her now to teach things that she probably would not have even explored. Am I speaking out of turn or is that how you no, feel? No, that's correct. In uh, my classes, uh, when I taught mythology in college, uh, I used to say to the students, when we study the cycle of myths, we always see that there are many levels of development you know, from the child into the ego state and a more conscious state. And then the myths always reflect back to us that there is a much vaster uh, state of consciousness that we can experience, this total mystic consciousness, and in which we know that the universe is alive, it's one, we're all in this together, all life, and the core is love, the source is love, consciousness and light. And But I used to say to the students, there's very good evidence to believe that this is a possibility for all of us, because it's in every mythology. But I have to tell you, honestly, I have never experienced it. But I do think there's credibility to the the stories. And so then it was after when he died is when I really opened up to it. And I thought, oh, it is true. It is true. after. Oh, it's amazing. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed your your book. As I say, I, I think you handled talking about your own grief very well, but um, I, I, it was still very real to me. I, I, um, I because I had come to sort of like the people, and there you were. <laughs> Suddenly, you had to mourn them. I, I really, um, I, I think you did very well with the grief part. But you and I, I think, based on what I have read now of two books of yours, you and I have come kind of to the same place we realize that what we know gives us a responsibility and frankly a privilege and a joy to teach others mm-hmm. not to fear death to teach others that consciousness is the base creative force and that they they have no idea how powerful their mind is and and what's possible in their lives and so this is this is something where you, you and I have sort of come through two totally different courses in two two totally different ways but come to the same place and when I asked you what you'd like me to ask you you gave me questions which I would also be giving to someone to ask me and I thought well this is neat (laughs) we can talk about these things from our two very different perspectives now you have started um the Camlock Center right well actually uh Kimberly Saavedra is the director and founder of that center and she had actually been one of my students in college. And really? she was, yes, she wasn't. And uh, she, uh, in fact, she was in my class this semester after my son was killed. And um, she then had full a scholarship to go to UCLA. And so I was then writing uh, the my first book, A Miracle of Death. And I said, you know, uh, Ishwan and I recorded everything. Uh, on the tape recorder, and I transcribed it later. I said, I wanted to be sure that what I'm writing is not sensationalized, that we were accurate about it to the best of my ability. And I said, I'm kind of afraid of sending it out to a publisher because I don't want it sensationalized. And so then she came back one day and she said, you know what? I've started a a publishing company of my own, and I am going to publish your book. Oh, wow. Isn't that lovely? And she has... And she published the uh, second book, which now is won, by the way, two awards, uh, 
it won the Nautilus and also the Scientific and Medical Network Award. And she did. She was really did an expert job uh, at, at very well done. Yes. Yeah. And so uh, that's that's how that happened. That so she also then she makes she handles everything, all of the talks or the podcast or interviews and everything that we do. She handles yes. that part of it and gives me so much uh more space, you know, and plus, I don't even know how to do some of those things. I've just left it up to her. <laughs> yes, that, that, I have two daughters who are very expert. And if I didn't have them, I, I wouldn't be on the air. Believe me, nothing. <laughs> yeah, well, oh my. Great. And we, again, we are. I remember when they invented fax machines, you know, I mean, it's a long <laughs> oh, time ago. Well, and when I was in college, there was no way uh, to print anything. Right. Uh, we, we had to sit in the library and take notes forever. So yes, uh, yes. it's it's I can't even imagine now how I ever wrote a dissertation on a typewriter. I know, isn't that it's it is funny to see my my mother in law before she died, um, you know, got to see uh, the moon landing, and um, but she, when she was a child, they had horse and buggy that they did. There was no possibility of even having a, a vehicle that was powered by anything other than uh, you know a horse. So I know that. I my father did the same thing, though. Think about it. The difference between what it was like when you were when you were a child, or, or I was was a child, and what it's like now oh, is yeah. the same degree of amazement. It is really wonderful. We have done amazing things in the outer world, but right. we do need to meet uh, that same level of accomplishment by remembering who we are, by going inward and and allowing ourselves to be in touch with other dimensions quantum physicists know we can do that they know there are other dimensions and they know that we have the ability to uh, access these dimensions and our ancestors and that's why i wrote the first book our second book uh, merchants of light our ancestors very naturally uh, knew that and yes. they they also knew that the most important thing for them was to know, understand, and stay in the rhythm of the laws of nature and to be connected to the other dimension. And in the megalithic era, for example, with these huge megalithic structures all around the world and, and pyramids later, we, they were both temples and observatories so that the, it was easier for the individual to stay in touch both with the energies of the earth and of the cosmos. And the individual was seen as the mediator between those energies. And by being in temples and temples which were built later, they were structured in a way to trigger us into that larger state of consciousness. This should be the role of anything that calls itself a religion or a yes. spiritual tradition, is yes. to, to find the ways that they can trigger consciousness our own inner experience of the divine or Christ consciousness. Yep, wonderful. And one of the, here's a quote from you. Our major cultural myth has been one of disconnection, loss, purposelessness, and insignificance. That we're talking about the Western cultural myth. Is, it, is there any wonder that we hurt ourselves, each other, our children, and our planet? All life is in danger when we hold a worldview that is not inclusive. We know this, yet we fear change and transformation. We fear losing the only reality we know when truly only the limitations of that reality 
are threatened. I thought that was really brilliant, so I wrote it down. Oh, <laughs> Thank good. you for Thank that. You. I'm glad. Now, one of the many things you and I have in common in what we are, what we teach, is that there is a planetary shift in consciousness underway. I speak about it differently I, because frankly Jesus talked about it and that was that seems to have been the primary reason he came was to teach us what was coming and we talk about it from that perspective but you talk about it from this whole different perspective which I just love so talk a little bit about our incipient planetary shift in consciousness which is really already underway yes it is underway and I think that we the way I understand this is that in order to become conscious, in order to shift into a, a vaster state of consciousness and creativity, of knowing who we are, we must see our own darkness, the darkness that we have created on the planet. When I was heavily studying people who had traveled out of body, um, uh, the Monroe Institute is one place where a lot of this was done. One of the things that that some of them experienced, these people who traveled out of body and looked back at the earth, was it was covered in gunk, mm-hmm. spiritual gunk. Literally, they could see that. There, well, was one, there was one woman who was able to, to travel uh, in time, and 200 years from now, it was, there was no longer any gunk. Oh, well, that's very encouraging. But, you know, Pishi's girlfriend, Jenny, also had experiences with him. And that was one thing that he did with her. He took her out into space, and she said, I looked back at the Earth, and I could see pollution all around it. And he said to her, Jenny, that's not just uh, material, physical pollution. That's the pollution that we have created because we have not done our inner work. And it's this pollution that we have to work on. We talk about the negativity that has overwhelmed this planet. We experience it in all, you know, the wars and the anger and the hatred and the political mess, all of that. It appears if you get beyond the material universe and go into the other dimensions as uh, that Betty was talking about, you can see it. It's real. And it is very, it's poison. Basically, we have, we have drenched our own planet in poison. So, so talk more about this, the shift in consciousness as you see it happening. Well, one thing that I learned in uh, writing Merchants of Light, and I knew somewhat before I started doing the research, but I could see that our ancestors had very naturally realized that there is another dimension of reality that they needed to be in touch with, and so they created ways to be in touch with that. And there were several societies or cultures that were very powerful as shaman, mystic, and scientist, scientific cultures. And each time, these cultures were destroyed. They were destroyed sometimes just through history, but usually and so often they were destroyed by organized, the organized religion of the Roman church and the Habsburg state empire, you might say. So yes. they were destroyed again and again. But the incredible thing is that in there were four Renaissance periods in Europe and a fifth one today in which that ancient tradition arose and it was what ignited each of those Renaissance period from the uh, high Middle Ages, uh, the Italian Renaissance, and the uh, Renaissance in 1600, which was a scientist, mystic, uh, 
realization uh, to our own, and of course the German Romantic period, to our own time. So today it has we are awakened again to this ancient knowledge that was what we were when we started out on our journey. And it's existed underground, but it's arisen each time and brought about a renaissance. And today it's much vaster and wider uh, than it has ever been. And we also now have science as our partner because quantum physics knows very well that matter and life and all consciousness have their roots in a world beyond space and time. Those are the words actually of a scientist. <laughs> and uh, so I think that this shift in the 20th century was a time of all of these cultures being revealed. Different scholars not in touch with each other were discovering these cultures and that, oh, look at what actually had existed was destroyed, but each Renaissance period, it came back and it worked very, very hard to wake us up to help us to open ourselves to who we are. As Jesus says in the Nag Hammadi text, I didn't come to save you from sin. I came to help you to remember who you are. Yes, that's exactly right. And anyone who reads the Gospels open-mindedly sees that's really what he said to us. Even in the, in the, the plain old Gospels that, are, that made it into the Bible, that's the reason he came, is to help us to, to make the great leap of understanding um, that among many other things that we are eternal. Yeah, exactly. Do you see what I mean, everyone? I mean, <laughs> frankly, when Betty and I talk, we complete each other's sentences, and that doesn't <laughs> happen with me, with anybody except a few real experts in this field. So I, I just think it's thrilling. But there are things you know that I have no clue about. Um, one of them is, the you know, you, you, you talk about – I should just say, everyone, there's an appendix in the book, which includes a whole bunch of the amazing experiences that are that are throughout the book. Um, and I, I some of them I haven't really, frankly, ever thought about or heard of. What, what, what are some of the classes of experiences that people have had? Uh, classes of experience of extraordinary experiences. I mean, I had an experience of light. We know some people have near death experiences, but I see that there, I mean, the, all these visions that you all had, all these, and, and you dream and you remember your dreams. I cannot believe that. It's so amazing. You have these complicated dreams and you remember them. It has to be a learned skill because I certainly don't remember anything about my dreams. Well, you know, I when I was a child, my mother uh, had told me about the death of her mother and of her grandmother. All of the women in her family died young. And so I had a real fear of death. I was so afraid of losing my mother. And yes. then I had a dream uh, that she did die. And I knew that my mother had had a dream of her mother two years before she died. And when she died, what happened in the dream was exactly what had hap what did happen. And so I was very afraid of death. And so I think that I was always looking. Uh, I was looking for something other than what my world gave me. I did go to church as a child, and I was very fascinated with the stories of Jesus, but I wasn't able to believe. I wanted to experience, to know yes. from my yes. own inner self, which is what Jesus wanted us to do, too. But yes. that was lost sometimes with the church. But um, I think that uh, that is what caused me, that fear caused me to 
uh, look to dreams. Well, if I was so afraid of that dream, uh, I, I want to be conscious and aware of what I'm dreaming. And then uh, when I was in college, I dated a young man who had just finished Andover Newton uh, Seminary, and he had a church uh, in uh, just outside uh, Detroit. And he, he had a party one night, and uh, it was just an amazing party of people from Andover Newton. They were all talking about physics and mathematics and dreams oh and, and Carl Jung. So when it was over, I said, who is Jung? And so he took me into his library and I took home two books. Uh, uh, let's see, the discovering the discovery of soul. Oh, modern man in search of a soul. That was it. And uh, I just thought, well, I'm in search of that. <laughs> but I, yes. thought, <laughs> I was desperately in search of that. If there was one, I always had to say to myself, well, now I know there is. But then I did. And so uh, I really, as reading Jung, sometimes I didn't really understand him, but I just kept reading. And I really was aware of my dreams, and I wrote them down. And I was in a Christian college, and but I still couldn't believe, although it was a wonderful place for me, great scholars, and they taught us to be totally independent, search things out for ourselves. Uh, but... Uh, when I was going, I went back actually for my master's there in American studies, uh, good, good scholars, uh, but I, I did not believe, and I was not part of that. And so just as I was finishing, I had a dream that really did guide me into the future. It's, uh, I, I, there were, I was in a deep forest, and there was a, a woman dressed in blue standing on like a little Japanese arch uh, of a bridge, and I knew that she had what I needed to know. And over to the right was a lake or water. It was misty and a white spiral came out of it. And it came over to me. I had, I had fallen down in front of her on my stomach and the mist touched me at the spine. And then the question was, and now do you believe in God? Well, it was an interesting thing. Oh. <laughs> I mean, wow. it really did open me to exactly what my problem was because I didn't <laughs> believe it, even though I experienced it. Yes. So, yes, yes. Uh, so that really, I had dreams every step of the way that guided me, and it also showed me exactly where I was lacking as I went along in the journey. So that, uh, and then I just started reading Jung more and more because my only connection to the other world, not through anything that my society could give me, except through following the dream and the vision. So I started then studying that, trying to find out more about it, and continuously reading Jung, because Jung did have a very deep insight into uh, the organizing principles within the human psyche that structure the dreams, the visions, our lives. And that was a, a life-saving understanding for me. Great, wonderful. Everyone, just if you don't know who this guy is, um, it's spelled J-U-N-G. And can you give us like a, a couple of sentences about him, when he lived and what he did? Yes, he uh, was born in the latter part of the 1800s. He died uh, in the 60s, 1960s, I think. Yeah, and uh, he was... Uh, he, was first of all a medical doctor and worked with the mentally ill, but he he was so deeply committed to understanding and wanting to know is there anything else? And he had many dreams and visions. And of course he worked with his patients. And his patients had 
startling uh, discoveries in their dreams that changed them, that helped to heal them. And he came to know uh, Freud, but he and Freud parted ways because Jung really asked questions that Freud did not want to answer. He did not want to go yes. in that direction. Yes. But Freud gave the world a lot. But yeah. Jung wanted to go, he wanted to understand the human psyche. And he also, I learned from him about fairy tales. Fairy tales are, are very clear structures of the organizing principle within us. For instance, Jung said, uh, an acorn, an acorn is uh, the psyche. The human psyche is like an acorn because in that acorn is are all the principles or seeds that will develop into an oak tree. And the important right. thing is that it developed completely. And he said, within our psyche, we have all of the seeds to become whole. And that is the goal. That is the intention of the human psyche is for us to become complete and to become whole. And I certainly knew from my own training that the Western world, of course, had forgotten that we even have this acorn within us, the seeds within us, a psyche within us, because during the 1700s, the French Enlightenment came and they just threw away everything that had come before. The only thing that was important was a conceptual mind, rational thought. And of course, that was devastating because <laughs> dreams were just foolish. You ate too much or whatever. And right. then because the church would not allow uh, scientists to continue to study both the inner world and the outer world, as they had done in uh, the Rosicrucian Enlightenment at 1600, they cut it all down and destroyed it at 1620. And oh, yeah. so when the Royal Society of Science developed in 1660, the scientists knew that if they wanted to live, they could not study the inner world. And that is why we have only a material uh, universe, according to science. But of course, that's all changing now because quantum physics in the early 1900s broke through that material world and everything began to be revealed to them as so vast, so much and more incredible than just the material world. And they would say consciousness is primary. It is consciousness that but, has but, created the world. But nobody listened. I mean, they were saying this a hundred years ago. And nobody, they, to this day, Betty, the scientists are looking for a source of consciousness in the brain. I, I read, I read these articles just published, which are complete, utter garbage. They're crazy theories. Well, this happens, so we think that's how consciousness arises. No idea what that means. I, know. I mean, I know. How can we say there's nothing but matter and yet, oh, well, this is just uh, an an offshoot of, of of the brain, but yes. it's conscious. I mean, it no, it really is ridiculous and should not be able to call itself by the name of science. Right, but exactly. But the two, thing, the, the two critical things that they cannot and will not ever understand are how science, you know, where consciousness comes from, um, how it arises from matter, and where life comes from. How does life arise from matter? Neither well, of them does. And when they understand, when they flip it around and they understand that consciousness is, in fact, the base creative force, they'll understand it's the source of both what we experience as consciousness and life itself. It's Absolutely. easy. Yes, it, because the light is love. It is consciousness. Yes, and it is yes. the source, the root of everything in this world. And uh, it's, it's, I think that what 
is so important is that we have to experience it. You know, people who've had near-death experiences try so hard to explain it. And everyone who steps into the visionary world, and I think it's very deep, we can go much further than most of us have gone. But we then it's like, it's like my husband said, I had no idea. Right, you don't know. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and once he experienced it, it was different. And you know, the Sufis, and I talk about this uh, in the second book, Merchants of Light, the Sufis were really great travelers They in the spirit world, and they had mapped it, you might say. They, they understood the many dimensions of the subtle world. And uh, Henry Corbin, who writes about uh, the Sufi, uh, Sufis and their tradition, he's very clear about the fact that we all have what the Sufis call the organ of soul. And it is this organ which allows us a precise perception of those other dimensions. We have that ability, and we need to be studying that <laughs> rather yes. than how does consciousness arrive from matter. Right, it's crazy. But the day will come, and you're helping to bring it closer, for which I'm grateful. We're coming to, actually, we're going to do this again. I, I, I want to talk about some of the other things with you, too, that we never even got to today. But good, good. for today, we're coming to the end of our time. And I just wonder, what do you hope people will take away from our conversation today? I think today, given our situation, we need to do everything we can to discover who we are, that we are a part of a vast, eternal, creative, divine universe. Our ancestors wanted us to know we are immortal, we are divine, and we are creative, and that we can, we can achieve, create the world we want for ourselves and our children. It can be a world where we can be loving and creative. And understand that everyone in the human species is part of who we are. Yes, there is no separation at all. No. Yeah. Beautiful. But do you see how that, this, this is one gigantic truth? You can approach it from several different directions. And frankly, if you are a little bit grossed out by the fact that because of, you know, your, your experiences with, with Christianity, I wouldn't be, you know, surprised if you feel that way to some extent. You don't have to study Jesus. You can go to get to the same place by studying the kinds of things that Betty has studied. It's all one whole. It's, there's one truth. We talk about the little pieces of that truth. That's why we call this seek reality. I'm so, Betty, I've been so glad to have you here. I always enjoy talking to you. Oh, thank you. And I would like to add that Jesus was one in whatever else one knows about Jesus who had achieved this Christ consciousness of which yes. we are all capable. Yes, totally. Oh, my goodness. This has been fun. We'll do this again. Okay, Every, great. Next week, we're going to talk with Tricia J. Robertson, and she's a British lady I've wanted to actually share with you for a while. Tricia is a former teacher of mathematics and physics and a lecturer in psychical research at the University of Glasgow in Scotland. So unlike yours truly, she's actually a scientist. Go figure. And this week, Dr. Betty J. Kovacs has been with us for the second time. Betty's a recognized expert in the spiritual aspects of consciousness. And she has a Ph.D. from the University of California at Irvine, a very serious degree, actually. And she taught there for 25 years. 
For many years, she served as chair of pro- program chair on the board of directors of the Young Society of Claremont in California. She's an expert there, too. And she sits on the academic advisory board of the Forever Family Foundation. The last time she was with us, Betty talked about her wonderful second book called Merchants of Light, The Consciousness That Is Changing the World. Then today we've been talking about the lead-in that she wrote to that second book. This first book is called The Miracle of Death. There is nothing but life. Actually, I found it to be a very touching and painful account of the loss of her mother, her young adult son, and then her husband, one, two, three, in just a few years. But it's not depressing. It's a gripping book. It's about how we can come to understand the truth and the reality that we are eternal. We never die. And the wonderful experiences she had with her husband and son, which I assume are ongoing. I meant to ask her that, but we'll ask her next time. Make this a really gripping, exciting, uplifting, life-transforming book. We're with her through her dreams. All these things that happen, and they're all, as I say, assembled in an appendix. All the things that happened to her that brought her from being terrified of death to understanding that life really is eternal. And she gets there primarily from the fact that she is someone who has extensive knowledge of, of how people have looked at this situation, not just for the past 100 or 200 years, but for thousands of years. If any use of the Gospels bothers you, as I say, or if you just want to see how it's possible to get to the same place by a totally different road, this really is your book, The Miracle of Death by Betty J. Kovacs. Now, as you know, my own nonfiction books are Liberating Jesus, My Thomas, The Fun of Dying, The Fun of Staying in Touch, The Fun of Growing Forever, The Fun of Living Together, and soon The Fun of Loving Jesus, Embracing the Christianity that Jesus Taught. For your children, there's The Fun of Meeting Jesus, which is a picture book, and we're soon going to be putting out the second one. We have the illustrations. We just have to get the author to pay attention and actually write the book. But you can order all my books through bookstores or on Amazon.com, and the adult books are also available as audio books. Never forget that if you want to talk with me about any of this, I even sometimes have conversations with people by phone if they prefer it, but the first step is always to just go to the green contact block on robertagrimes.com and send me an email. It can take a week to hear back because I get so many of them, but I do love to hear from you, so don't hesitate to do it. Past episodes of Seek Reality are on webtalkradio.net, realrevolutionradio.com, iTunes, iHeart, the wonderful Green Vision 7 radio family, and other places. There also is a Seek Reality app if you just simply like to carry it around in your phone and have the new episode come to you each week. If you enjoy our weekly conversations, too, you might also want to check out my blog at robertagrimes.com. I use it to work out a lot of the issues that you and I work on. So, um, you know, come, come by some Sunday. Oh, there are a lot of people who comment and many more people send me emails. So we, we kind of have a lot of fun with that, uh, with that blog. My role in your life is to help you get to the truth about your, the fact that you are eternal and to get there in two or three years. If there's any way I can help you with that, please just let me know and I'll do my best. I, the, this is easy stuff. It's not hard, and it is more beautiful, really, than anything any you have ever believed or ever ever have heard from anyone, whether it's in the NDER, whether it's you know a church. Nobody 
as, as Betty, I think, has so eloquently said, nobody begins to prepare you for the truth, which is so unbelievably glorious. So meanwhile, everyone, this has been Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Please enjoy, please make the most of this coming week in our one wonderful reality, knowing that you are a powerful, eternal being, and you in particular, most of all in the universe, you are infinitely loved. You've been listening to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Roberta blogs and answers questions at robertagrimes.com. Join us every week as we explore what the afterlife evidence and modern science combine to tell us is true about the one reality we all share. Knowing the truth changes everything.